name is DC O'Rourke. Do you have a message for me to pass on to the living? Well, hello there, pair of family. How are you? I see you've decided to accept my invitation. Why don't you come on in, gather around the dining room table, pull up a seat next to your favorite phantom bard, and strap in for season two. That's right, the long-anticipated wait is over. Hauntingly Yours, a podcast for the paranormal, is finally back. And boy, am I ready. I am so ready. Let's go ahead and just dive right into this, shall we? Season one, you and I, we got to visit haunted locales together. We got to learn of their history, their ghostly lore, all the spooky stuff that ends up getting lost in between. And we had a great time with that, right? Don't worry. You're still getting that in this season. But you're getting a little bit more. You're also going to be getting haunted tales of exorcisms, creepy urban legends, personal experiences with haunted objects, paranormal news headlines, and interviews with special guests from the paranormal field. And even more. You guys, you are in for a real paranormal treat. There are so many stories out there, and they are just dying to be told. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I went there. But I'm DC O'Rourke, your ever-fabulous phantom bard, and I am here for you once more. The very first episode of Season 2 is dedicated to none other than Mount Vernon, the former home of George Washington, who is the first president of the United States. Now, I'm sure some chills just shot down some history nerd's spine, and it's okay. Yes, this place is haunted. Shouldn't come as any surprise. I mean, wherever you find lots of history, you tend to find lots of spirits in the process. They, the two just seem to go hand in hand. Now, like always, to better understand the ghostly happenings of this location, we should take a look at the history first because, well, Mount Vernon has lots of it. Not only is this the former plantation of George Washington, uh, who's buried here, but you've also got his wife, Martha, and about 20 other Washington family members. The current estate is actually open to the public. Um, 
they allow you to tour the mansion, the gardens. Um, you can actually visit the family tombs. There's a working farm, a functioning distillery, and a grist mill, plus a museum and education center, of course. The plantation is located in Mount Vernon, Virginia, which is in the United States for anybody who's listening outside of the U.S., it overlooks the Potomac River, which is about eight miles south of Alexandria. Now, it's unclear who designed the original estate home, but we do know George himself oversaw its many expansions and renovations until it became the iconic structure that still stands today. The plantation was originally called Little Hunting Creek Plantation and owned by John Washington. Now, John, he eventually passed the estate to his son, Lawrence, who then passed it to his daughter, Mildred. In 1726, Mildred's brother, Augustine, George Washington's father, purchased the estate and built the main part of the plantation house, an ordinary one-and-a-half-story structure. Augustine passed the estate to his eldest son, Lawrence, George's elder half-brother in 1740. Lawrence renamed the estate Mount Vernon after the famed English naval officer Admiral Edward Vernon. Ah, okay, I see where that comes from. Believe it or not, George had lived for much of his childhood at Mount Vernon already with his half-brother Lawrence learning the ins and outs of planting and how to be a cultured member of society. George would later go on to inherit the plantation after the deaths of his elder half-brother Lawrence and his two children. At this point, though, George was actually a major shareholder in the property and began to lease it from Lawrence's widow, Anne, who decided to move out and remarry. When George married Martha Dangeridge Custis, yes, that Martha, in 1759, he officially made Mount Vernon his home, and upon the widow Anne's death in 1761, he became the sole owner of the property. Over the next four decades, Washington renovated Mount Vernon's main house into a two-and-a-half-story, 11,028-square-foot stately home with 21 rooms. He oversaw almost every detail, always making sure the estate reflected his distinguished status, even as he served in the Revolutionary War and as president of the United States. The walls of the mansion are made of wood, although they look like stone. To achieve the look, Washington used rustification, a technique where wood boards are cut and beveled to look like stone blocks, and then sanded and painted while wet to provide a stone-like texture. Washington expanded Mount Vernon's lands to around 8,000 acres, he created four gardens on the estate, including the lower garden, a kitchen garden for growing fruits and vegetables year-round, 
The Upper Garden, a garden intended for guests to stroll through which included gravel walkways, fruit trees, and elaborate planting beds. The Greenhouse, a beautiful structure where tropical plants were grown year-round. The Botanical Garden, a small garden in the back of the spinning house where George grew plants from all over the world and tested potential crops. Two tombs stand on Mount Vernon. The original family vault, now known as the Old Tomb, and the new vault, now known as the New Tomb, which became the family's final resting place. After realizing the original tomb was deteriorating, Washington instructed in his will that a new resting place be built upon his death, and all family members reinterred there. He also provided the financial means to build it. George and Martha were originally buried in the old tomb, but were later moved to rest permanently in the new tomb. Other Mount Vernon buildings, or outbuildings, I guess I should say, include a blacksmith shop, a spinning room, a smokehouse, a storehouse, 16-sided barn, stables, servants' quarters, gardener's house, overseer's quarters, slave cabins for enslaved families, men's slave quarters, women's slave quarters. Mount Vernon's acreage was divided into five farms. Mansion House Farm included the mansion house and its surrounding area. Large-scale crops weren't grown there, but the farm contained gardens, woods, tree groves, and meadows. The four agricultural farms on Mount Vernon farmed over 3,000 acres and were called River, Muddy Hole, Dogue, and Union. Washington originally cultivated tobacco, Virginia's prime crop, of course, but later made wheat his main harvest. He also produced other grains and foods that allowed him to successfully rotate his crops and experiment with various farming methods. Washington was intimately involved in the goings-on of Mount Vernon, agriculture, and otherwise. Even as he led his country, he also managed to lead the activities of Mount Vernon. Over 300 slaves labored at the plantation. Fewer than half were owned by George Washington. 153 of them were part of the bridal dowry of his wife Martha from her previous marriage, and the rest were rented out by another plantation owner, or several for that matter. Most of the slaves worked and lived on the estate's farms. Many who worked at Mansion House Farm were craftsmen such as blacksmiths and carpenters. Others were weavers and cooks. Almost half of Mount Vernon's slaves were very young, too young you might say. Some were too old or, or even too weak to work daily. Mount Vernon's slaves led a dismal life. They toiled from sunup to sundown every day but Sunday. In addition to taking care of Mount Vernon as a whole, they also handled their own daily chores, such as caring for livestock, 
planting and harvesting gardens and cooking and preserving food. Their quarters were once described as wretched, and I don't think that's an understatement. Days off for Washington slaves were rare, although they were usually given time off for Christmas, Easter, and other religious holidays. Most of the slaves were Christian, but some practiced African voodoo or Islam. According to lore, Washington was at times a brutal slave master. Although some reports state he treated his slaves well, documentation shows he worked them relentlessly, employed harsh punishment, and sold them at will, often separating families. As it would turn out, some slaves fought back against their unfair fate by attempting escape. At least two were successful. George Washington's personal cook, Hercules, and Martha Washington's personal maid, Oni Judge. Other slaves chose more passive ways of protest, such as underperformance, theft, and even sabotage. Martha went to great lengths to capture Oni Judge, but she somehow eluded her grasp. One quick note, a side note, I, I have to throw in here. Please take this type of stuff with a grain of salt, you know, because slavery, yes, it was awful, but it really creates a certain type of picture in people's minds. George Washington was a great man who did great things for this country. Just because he owned slaves does not mean that he was a racist and treated people unfairly. He was just doing what others were doing at the time. It's as simple as that. We find out later, though, that Washington's will stipulated his slaves be emaciated, emancipated, emaciated, ugh, upon Martha's death, but she decided to free them in 1801. This happened a year before she died. She could not legally free her dower slaves, however, and they were returned to the Custis estate in New Kent, and ownership passed to her grandchildren. Martha may not have freed the slaves of the plantation early out of the goodness of her heart. According to Abigail Adams, wife of John Adams, in a letter to her sister, the slaves knew they were going to be freed upon her death, thanks to George, and Martha feared that they might send her to an early grave to earn that much-deserved freedom. Abigail wrote, Martha did not feel as though her life was safe in their hands, many of whom would be told that it was their interest to get rid of her. She therefore was advised to set them all free at the close of the year. Flash forward to today, the Mount Vernon Ladies Association owns and maintains Mount Vernon. Anne Pamela Cunningham founded the association in 1853. 
The association purchased Mount Vernon from George Washington's heirs in 1858 for $200,000 with the goal of saving the estate and preserving its history. It was a daunting task, but the association, with the help of lots of American citizens, worked tirelessly to save Mount Vernon and 500 of its acres. Over the years, many prominent people contributed to the cause, such as Henry Ford and Thomas Edison. The estate faced potential destruction during the American Civil War, but was later declared neutral ground and remained open to the public and intact. The association today continues to work to safeguard the integrity of Mount Vernon and its stories. Lastly, the museum and education center on the property, they have 23 galleries and theaters featuring interactive exhibits and short historic films. They also house more than 700 objects and artifacts related to Mount Vernon and its famous residents. Pets are welcome in many areas of the estate. Special tours and activities are often available, including period reenactments and demonstrations. Some events are included with admission. Others cost a, a nominal fee, I guess you could say. Now, what about the hauntings, though? Isn't that why we're really listening right now? Come on, you can admit it. It's okay. The, his, the history is interesting. It's fabulous. But we want to hear the ghost stories. Guys, I hate to tell you, we don't have the ghosts without the history. Keep that in mind. However, folks have been saying for years that Mount Vernon is totally haunted. And by a number of different spooks and specters. Strange and unexplainable things have been happening at this historic site as far back as spring of 1806. Man, can you believe that? The very first report of a ghost comes from a book published by prominent abolitionist and Boston mayor Josiah Quincy Jr. This was published posthumously, by the way. The book is called Figures of the Past from Leaves of Old Journals, and it's a collection of Quincy's old journals, letters, diaries, and many remembrances. According to Quincy Jr., when he was little, his father took a trip to Northern Virginia to visit Judge Bushrod Washington at the Mount Vernon estate. Upon Quincy's arrival, Bushrod embraced his friend and assigned his guest to the Washington bedchamber, the chamber in which his uncle had died in 1799. Bushrod, as he withdrew, apparently mentioned the rumor that an interview with his deceased uncle had been granted to some of the bedchamber's former occupants. Upon hearing the news, Quincy pondered upon the possibility that he might be found worthy to behold the glorified spirit of him who was so revered by his countrymen. The warning proved to be prophetic because Quincy Jr. claimed that during the night his father did see Washington 
He didn't want to say too much more on the subject as he felt he would have to consult an expert in cerebral illusions. Despite his hesitation to give more details, he assured readers that his father's assurance in this matter was perfect and that his father believed that brain action was at times set up in us by friends no longer in the flesh and that his own life had been guided by these mysterious influences. For some reason, the narrative continued from there with little transition after being told we get no more details. Bushrod Washington went on to allow Josiah Quincy to enter Washington's tomb, a custom connected with the hospitalities of Mount Vernon in Judge Washington's time, and an act that would be scarcely possible among persons of refinement at the present day. Quincy Jr. hinted at a possible cause for George Washington's ghost to be lingering at his former home, explaining that the velvet cover of the coffin was hanging in tatters, it having been brought to this condition by the assaults of relic hunters. Quincy concluded by quoting Ralph Waldo Emerson's aphorism, Care not to strip the dead of his sad ornament, because of all fetishes with which the imagination contrives to associate the august spirits of the great. He claimed, Such miserable shreds and patches are the most vulgar. The following was reported in the New York World Paper in 1890, when the Mount Vernon Ladies Association spent a night at the former home of George Washington. Of course, the most interesting of all the bedrooms is the one belonging to the immortal George, in which he died. In it is the original four-poster bed whereupon Washington passed his final moments. This historic chamber is haunted. Of that, there would seem to be little doubt. Many people within recent years have slept in it, and they declare that they were awed by the viewless presence of the nation's first president. They deny earnestly that the notion is based on imagination. Few of these temporary occupants have been able to get any sleep. Obviously, it is one thing to see a ghost, and quite another thing to feel one to, to be aware of the nearness of a strange and brooding specter. They all agree that Washington visits his chamber in the still watches of the night. Mrs. William Beale and a friend of hers spent a night at Mount Vernon. At their own request, they were permitted to occupy Washington's bedroom. In the middle of the night, they were awakened by the sputtering of their candle. They had had one surreptitiously lighted and one burning it in the middle of a basin of water. Fancied they saw a spook. It went out without a noise, and they began to feel alarmed. Mrs. Beale said to her friend, You are on the side of the bed where Washington died. The other replied, No, I'm not. He died on your side. Finally, they decided that the question was doubtful, and there was no more sleep for them that night. They got up, 
dressed themselves and sat around until morning, scared by every squeak of the windows, and at one moment were sure they heard Washington's sword clank distinctly in a corner. These two instances were only the beginning. Over time, other reports would rise to the surface and turn heads to the point where people realized Mount Vernon, well, there's more going on here than meets the eye. Guests have reported strange knocking sounds, unusual balls of light, shadow figures, and more. Historical interpreters, the employees of the plantation, the very people who know the property like the backs of their own hands, give us these tales that really make you think twice. Here are the stories in their words. From the 1980s to the 1990s, there was a series of separate incidents at Mount Vernon, according to a former head guard. I remember quite clearly how an alarm would frequently go off in the stables, in about the time it would take for someone to unsaddle a horse for the night and walk up to the mansion, an alarm would sound in the Washington bedchamber. Every single time I would dispatch guards to go and check it out. They would search the entire area to only find absolutely nothing. After a while, I came under the impression that it was simply the general who had come in from a ride to turn around and retire for the night. Back in the 1980s, on a particular busy day, a historical interpreter found herself working in the central passage when something odd happened. I thought I heard someone in the room behind me. Thinking that a visitor had gotten into the area by going under the rope barriers, I entered the little parlor to shoo them out. Much to my surprise, I found an older gentleman, sporting a large mustache and dressed in late 19th or maybe 20th century clothing, with his sleeves rolled up and secured with garters. When he saw that he had my attention, he shouted, What the hell is going on here? A reference to the noise a school group or groups were making. I told him that I was trying to quiet them down and... Then the man disappeared. Later on, I saw a portrait of the gentleman in question. Colonel Harrison Howell Dodge, Mount Vernon's director for about 50 years until his death in the late 1930s. In 2006, a supervisor from the Historical Interpretation Department recalled her first ever ghostly experience. My first encounter with a ghost occurred in the yellow room of the Mount Vernon mansion in 2006. I was a, a supervisor in the history interpretation department. Supervisors clear and lock the mansion after checking and rechecking for assurance that no one has been left inside the building after hours. After letting the last interpreter out the study door, I walked up to the back stairs, past the Washington's bedchamber, and into the yellow room. I suddenly felt myself being pushed, 
feeling the pressure of someone's hands on the back of my shoulders. I turned to look, and no one was there. It was obvious I wasn't wanted in the yellow bedchamber. This happened several more times, and I decided I would not go back upstairs if I was alone. I invited another interpreter to stay with me and travel the back stairs to the yellow room. Nothing happened. The next time when I was alone, I was once again pushed through the room. To keep this from being disturbed, I felt like it was best that I not use the back stairs, but to remove my shoes and cross through the downstairs bedchamber to the central passage and lock the door for the evening. A member of Mount Vernon's youth programs team recounted her experience from 2009. Originally, my office was located in the Teacher Resource Center of the Education Center, which it is now. It was after hours, and the staff had left. I gathered my coat and bag and set them on the table facing my desk. As I turned to put on my coat, I saw a female figure standing in the door of my office. She was dressed in clothing from the Civil War period, and she was totally gray. She stood in the doorway, looking straight ahead without moving. Her stare was very stern. It happened quickly, and then she was gone. There was no doubt in my mind that Anne Pamela Cunningham, founder of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, had been in the room. I stayed for a while, sitting quietly as I listened to the noises of cabinet doors opening and closing and hands-on history, but when I looked to see who was there, the room was empty. A member of Mount Vernon's security department reported the following strange encounter from back in 2012. My first experience with something that I cannot explain occurred in the mansion during the early years of the candlelight tours. The event took place on the anniversary of General Washington's death around 10.30 p.m. After the house had been cleared, I locked myself in. It was my responsibility to check the alarms for their proper positioning. When I was in the mansion study, I heard a heavy set of keys being walked across the floor in the Washington bedroom directly above. As I approached the back stairs to go up to the Washington bedroom, the sound of the keys abruptly stopped. General Washington was well known for his heavy set of keys, and that they could be heard as he walked through the house. Tobias Lear, the general's secretary, is known to have taken the keys from the general's pocket upon his death and turned the keys over to his enslaved manservant, Christopher Shields. The next story takes place at Mount Vernon in the summer of 2015 and comes from a guest. Hear the tale in her words. I was in Virginia, D.C. area for the 4th. It was my first time ever visiting and it was boiling hot. I mean like 98 degrees outside and dry compared to my native South Florida. It's hot. I'm wearing a tank top and sweating my butt off. 
The house was built in the early 1700s, so it's safe to assume adding central cooling into the house might jeopardize its structural integrity. So the only breeze entering any room of the house came from an open window. But I kept on enthusiastically through the house since I am a fanatic for the Founding Fathers and their compl complex, rich histories. Now, some of the rooms, the ones with more important artifacts, I suppose, have a plastic half-door over the door frames so as to allow visitors to peer into the room, sticking their heads and torsos in and nothing else. Pretty standard stuff. So the tour guides talking us, talking to us and taking us through the house, telling us about the history of the estate and the purpose of each room. And finally, we reach George and Martha's bedroom. I'm super excited at this point. I knew that this is the room George slept in, as well as the one where he died. And I was aching to see what it looked like. I vaguely noticed that everybody else in the tour group was standing around the room looking at it from afar. Well, I didn't pay any attention to that. Instead, I walked right up and peered past the half door. There I saw his bedroom. I was in the room past my chest. I was looking around and felt it was absolutely freezing in the room. It wasn't like mildly cold. It was like I had just struck my face right through a freezer. It was ice cold. I was confused because no other room was like that. And trying to find a source for the cold, a, a vent, or an AC unit outside the window, but there was none. The tour guy was talking about Martha's experience with Washington's ghost. Before I could ask more about it, I felt all the hair stand up on the back of my neck. I mean, like, in a way I've never experienced before, and from the center of the room, I felt somewhere, like someone was staring at me, very intently. I felt their eyes move closer and closer as if this spirit in the center of the room was walking towards me while staring me down. It was an intimidating presence. I knew immediately that it was him. At this point, I was freaking out. I tried to move away, but I found I was paralyzed, at least from the waist up. I couldn't move at all. I struggled and tried to move or at least look away but couldn't. I tried to open my mouth and scream but nothing came out. Finally, after what felt like an eternity, the eyes left me and I was able to free myself and I nearly fell over trying to pull myself away. The tour guide looked over at me like I was a freak of nature and I asked, is there any AC in that room? To which he replied, no, of course not. A character interpreter had a rather spooky encounter one night back in 2017. I've worked at Mount Vernon on and off since 2004. I most recently returned in January of 2017. The estate was abuzz with the latest spooky story. On December 15th, 2016, some strange sounds were heard coming 
from the third floor, and there had been reports of the temperature dropping by 20 degrees. When the tale was shared with me, I was determined to see if it would happen again. On December 14th of that year, 2017, the anniversary of the General's death, I was on the third floor waiting for some haunting, but nothing happened. However, when I returned the next night, the vibe in the area had changed. Upon looking into the southwest bedchamber, I noticed an electric candle was on. That's strange, I thought. It was dark last night. Had collections come and turned it on? Not likely. The third floor isn't open to the public. Then it hit me. George Washington died December 14th, 1799. And the next day, Martha Washington shut up the bedroom they shared and moved to the southwest bedchamber. Apparently, she's still making that sad day. By the way, it's a sad ending to a great man's life. If you don't know the whole story, you should definitely look it up. These are but a few of the ghostly tales that George Washington's former home has to offer. The spirits here are doing very much what they did in life. They are walking the grounds and trying to live some semblance of what they consider a normal life. If you've never visited Mount Vernon, I definitely recommend it. Make a day out of it and go early because there is a lot to see. You can easily spend the entire day there. Get to know the home. Feel the energy of the place and see if any of its former residents might decide to grace you with their presence. For more information on visiting the plantation, I suggest checking out mountvernon.org, where you can learn more about admission tickets, programming, the history of the place, and so much more. Thank you guys for allowing me to share these stories with you and immortalize the, the spirits of Mount Vernon, including good old George himself. I'm afraid that is all I have for you, though. If you enjoyed this episode, which I hope you did, go check out the link tree for the show and follow along on the show's social media pages. We've got Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, and even Clubhouse. The official link is linktr ee backslash hauntingly yours paranormal. Most importantly, don't forget to review and subscribe. This helps other people like yourselves find the show and join our pair family. Thank you. That is all I can say. Thank you for tuning in. New episodes will be released every Monday. Until next time, I'm DC O'Rourke. I am and will remain, much like the spirits, hauntingly yours. Thank <laughs> you.